0: You can be seated. It is with great privilege today that I'm going to introduce our famous bishop guest speaker today, the infamous Thomas Goodlett. And let me tell you what I like about Tom. Um, Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, Tom's been on our staff. Now, I want to say about four and a half or five. Has it been five years? Four and a half years. And Tom comes to work every day with a great attitude. He comes every time happy, excited. Secondly, what Tom does every single week is he tries to make things better. He analyzes where we are, what can we do better, what did we do right, how can we make this just a five percent course correction, and I love that. And Tom has um, a beautiful wife and three children and he is a great husband and a great father. What, what I really enjoy about Tom is the ability to trust him. As a pastor, he's one of our associate pastors. You, you got this is all based on trust. When, when, when you're working with people, you're working with women, you're working with adults, you're working with children, you're working with you know leaders. You have to be able to trust people. And Tom, he has this incredible integrity and character that it's so easy to work with him and to be a part of this. So it, it's, it's fun to do life. And so when you look at our church and you guys, you see the growth with our children's ministry and you see the growth with our connect groups and you see the growth with our student ministry and you see the growth with, you know, all the different singles environments It's a team of people who continue to pour in to what God wants them to do. And that's what Tom does. And so I know he's prepared. He studies hard. He thinks deeply about this. And so it is a great honor and privilege for us today to have Mr. Tom Goodlett. Will you come and speak for us?
1: (laughs) Thank you, Kirk. Uh, Appreciate
0: you. Cool. Um, I think
1: it's going to take us a second to kind of get set up this morning because just the way my brain works, it's generally in whiteboard, and uh, anybody that hangs out with me long enough sadly knows that. So I'm going to bring the whiteboard. I think they gotta, they're going to kind of focus the cameras in on it so that you can see um, what I'm doing. Most important decision I had to make this morning was uh, whether or not to eat a little breakfast before I talk, because um, inevitably comes the belch while I speak, but... Um, <laughs> But I also thought, what better place to belch where it's accepted and probably respected. So I feel safe here. So thanks. So we'll let Dan kind of kind of get that. If, uh, if you got your Bibles, good. Uh, break them out, or your phones or tablets or what have you. Uh, open them up, because we're going to do a little Bible study this morning. Open them up to Genesis chapter, chapter 1, right there, front page. In fact, I, I'm going to need your help a little bit, because I want you to... Uh, to look at Genesis chapter 1 and see if you can figure out, uh, look at verse 4, all right, in chapter 1, look at verse 10, 12, oh, it happens again in 18, 21, 25, and I think 31. Take a moment, look if you got it. Genesis chapter 1 in verse 4, verse 10 Verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, 25, and verse 31. Tell me if you can find the common denominator or a common denominator. There might be actually a couple in there, but... Can anybody figure it out? Good. Oh, man, you got it right away. Okay, yeah. In each case, this is God's creating the world. He creates creation within it, and uh, with each piece he creates, with each new day that passes... God sees that it was perfect. No, it doesn't, it, it doesn't use the word perfect. It uses the word good. God creates, I'm going to do this because we'll need space, I'm sure. God creates a world that is good. It does not say perfect, but it's good. I, I, think there's a I think if you were to say God created the world and it was perfect, perfect would imply don't mess it up. Don't mess with it. Don't touch it. Or you're, it's, it's not going to, you know, God did it, leave it, you know, it's the good China, you know, don't even look at it. And yet God creates a world when he looks at it, he says it is good. And then the next thing, he, he creates humanity, he creates man, and he says, this is good. And he places man right into the good to do good within the good. In fact, if you, if you flip forward to, uh, to Genesis chapter 2, we see that God, he creates Adam. And it says in verse 15 of chapter 2, it says, The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Hold that thought. Go on to verse 19. It says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So God creates a world that is good, and he puts man in it to start messing with it, to do good within it. And he gives man right away two jobs. I don't know if you caught that. There's two jobs. There's, there's this whole naming animals and tending gardens. Two jobs right away. I want to suggest to you this morning that everything we do as men goes back to one of these two jobs. That that everything I don't know what your occupation is or was or has been, but I can bet that it has something to do with either naming animals or tending gardens. Let, 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 me, let me put it back this way. Let me pick a broader word that I think encompasses this idea. Um, let, let's go with, how about, instead of naming, how about the idea of producing? In other words... There are jobs we have, and sometimes we do both these roles here I'm about to talk about, but, but producing, in other words, we, we either get creative, we're coming up with names for animals, or we're gathering ideas to bring something to the table to produce something that wasn't there before, or we're, we're tending what was already produced, we're managing I'm willing to bet that every occupation, every work job that you have done, either it turns out that you are producing something or you have been producing something or you are managing that which has been produced. And that that is in our inherent nature when God created us, created a good world, placed good people in a good world to do good things, and it all goes back to we're either producing or managing or sometimes both. In fact, I I would take it a step further that, that everything you do in your household goes back to producing or managing. In, in your marriages, you, you may be producing the household income and, and bringing the bacon to the table and then the next thing you do is provide a budget or something to manage that which has been produced, that which has been gathered and brought to the table. Uh, in, in, you might be producing children and then your next job is to manage your household of children. I, I want to suggest that everything we do in, in work, the, the way God has created us, geared us, everything we do in the church is either producing or managing. Every ministry God has given us, it's either to go out and make more disciples, to produce more disciples using the guidance of Jesus' teachings, or, and then to manage those disciples which are uh, inherently being made so we can go out and produce more disciples. That there is something within us, that, and it's a good thing. It's probably something we'll be doing for eternity. That we will, That God has jobs for us. And there's something about knowing we have a job, something to do that God has created something good and good things for us to do within it. There's something fulfilling as a man about producing and managing that which has been produced. And so we enjoy in our life, we like this and we like to do this well. Well. We love to produce and produce and be successful at producing or or to manage well and that people that are under our management understand and love us and and feel that they're being managed well. We like to succeed at these things. However, however, there's this one ugly word that over and over gets in the way of our God-created desire and ability and drive to produce and manage— And that word is failure. We want to do well at this, but somehow through the process, we continue to fail at this. Whether in the church, whether in our spiritual walk, whether in the, the secular market, with however you look at it, we don't like to fail. In fact, you can go out right now and, and buy about 100 books at the bookstore on how to succeed. We, we try at every cost not to fail. In fact, we've been taught from a very young age that the last thing we want to do is fail. I mean, we go to school and we determine our grade by how many we did not fail at, <laughs> You know, how many do we not get wrong? Oh, good, I only got three failures. Great. (laughs) 97, I'll take it. We have learned at a young age that it is not good, or we we don't think it's good to fail. Why? Because we're chasing after perfect. (laughs) We've somehow got the lines crossed that it's got to be perfect, not good. And so what happens to us I think is one of of two things generally, what happens to us with failures. One, we don't like failure, so we avoid failure. And so what failure will do is it'll halt the process, not because we failed, but because we're afraid to fail. We won't progress forward, we're gonna play it safe, and we're not gonna cross the line because we know the last time it hurt when we failed. And and so we'll play it safe, but the irony is even playing it safe isn't safe. I mean, eventually you get fired because you never took any risks, (laughs) You get fired because you never progressed forward, or you get, you know, or, or you're paying consequences because you didn't risk it. Or, or there are those of us who will take the risk, and, and we will move forward and risk failure, and then yet somehow when we fail, we, we all of a sudden, we feel like we took three steps forward, and all of a sudden, because of failure, it's pushed us four steps backwards. And we're further back than when we started in this progression. We hate failure. It hurts. <laughs> It's not fun. It's embarrassing. I remember when I was uh, in college, at Milligan College in East Tennessee, and finally I was a senior in college, and, and there I was. Uh, in the cafeteria, in the cafeteria line, uh, early on, uh, in that year, I was with some of my buddies and, uh, and, uh, some observing freshmen. We're waiting in line. And the way it works at Milligan is they, they have the, the line into the inner room where you can get your tray and get your disgusting food and move on kind of thing. And, uh, and so as we're waiting in line in this long line and my buddies are around, uh, parallel to our line, I noticed there is the salad bar right there. And, uh, and there's a line, and, and I notice right across from me, I'm standing in line right across from me, there's my roommate, Mike. And uh, he's got his back to me. He's, he's just minding his own business, making himself a salad. Uh, you know, I, I want to be the goofy one, the fun one. I want, you know, draw a little attention and, and show how cool I am as a, as a senior. And so I do what any guy I know would do, and that is I reach over and I goose Mike. I squeeze his butt. I don't know if you've ever done that. But that's the college we did that. We, I reached over. I, I go to shock Mike. You know, I'm going, I'm going to get Mike. And I, I goose him. And, and, and I, sure enough, I see his back. He he reacts. He's, he's a, he turns around, and it's not Mike. <laughs> Some guy I've never seen before. My friends are looking at me like, what are you going to do? And in a panic, I just pointed to the guy in front of me. And I'm like, I don't know. That guy's disgusting. I don't, you know, I... <laughs> But but failure, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. when We have it played out in our head. Things are going to go this way, and they don't. And everybody knows it didn't go the way you planned it. And and from what I can tell, there's there's at least two types of failures over and over in our life. And and one I, I would call personal failure. In other words... It didn't meet my expectations. Wasn't how I planned it. Wasn't how I thought it was gonna go. I thought I was gonna lock in this sale. It didn't happen. I thought it was all gonna work out with, with you know this kind of discipline system and um, it's not working with my kids, or, or what happened. but there's personal failure. And then what I would say is there's moral failure where we don't meet God's expectations. We know, God said it, it wants it this way, and I have missed the mark. What uh, complicates this, this whole idea, I think, is Jesus. I think Jesus complicates it for guys like us, because we're not Jesus. We want to be like Jesus, but we've yet to hit the mark. And we can look at Jesus and go, well, we know he didn't have any moral failures. And you might be able to argue that he had some personal failures. Perhaps things didn't go the way he had hoped ultimately. I I don't know. You you might be able to discuss it. But but there seems to kind of be a disconnect when it comes to, to us and Jesus. Or at least there's this gap. But I want to tell you this morning, the Bible teaches us about Jesus. And the Bible also teaches us about men who try hard to follow after Jesus. Great men of God, great men of God throughout the Bible, and I want to tell you this morning that great men of God fail. A lot. In both these categories. Great men of God fail. Failure is inevitable. I'm not saying it's acceptable, but I'm saying it's inevitable. It's it's going to happen as long as we try to progress forward as long as we take risk or whatever, it, as long as we grow it's inevitable and it's actually a necessary part of progress and so and so while risk is difficult risk is necessary I'll be honest I I feel like I'm taking a risk this morning I do I, I feel like like I'm taking I, when, when Tim texted me about a month ago, said, hey, you still good to speak at Men's Breakfast? I'm like, absolutely. He says, do you want to talk about sex? That's always a popular one. And and uh, going, as much fun as I have with that topic, um, I, I said, I, I kind of like to talk about uh, about failure. Somebody need to take a call or something? Or you okay? Okay. Um, I, I said, I'd like to talk about... The joy in failure. And, and I realized as I'm texting that back, I have just shot back a topic that I don't I don't have solidified in my head. I'm throwing out an idea that may, I may be going through, may be working through, but it's not something I've yet to be any sort of expert in. And, th- and so the thought was, well, I got a month. So at least, you know, I got a month from now. By the time I'm standing here this morning, I'll get this one down. I'll have this one, uh, you know, I'll have some great information. I don't have all of the information, but what I can tell you this morning is what I'm learning. And that is, when done right, when done good, there is some joy to be had in failing. Somewhere in this process, failure doesn't have to stall us out. It doesn't have to push us back. It can move us forward. And we can experience joy through the process. And two things matter in this process. One is what do I do when I fail? Me, or in this case, we. And what does God do in the midst of the failure? I want to throw you some things I'm learning. In order to press forward through your failure and find joy in it, first I'm realizing... That it's good to fail fast. It is. It's good to fail fast. My mom had a prayer for me, especially when I was a teenager. She knew I would do stupid things. She knew I wouldn't always obey. Her prayer was I would just get caught on the first try. (laughs) I think it worked. Yeah, that I would get caught right away, that I would learn quickly that this is not the right way to go, and I would adjust then the path. And, and whether it's something you're going to on a personal level or something on a moral level, the, the thing is, if we could learn quickly, then, then hopefully our, our, what we can do in, that, in the moment of the failure, if we can fail fast, the word, the, the biblical word we see over and over is, is the word repent. That if we can catch it right away, we'll put it this way non Christian men, Christian men, we both fail. I don't think necessarily non-Christian men fail less. I think the distinction is when Christian, or, or when Christian men fail, the goal is to still get back up and head in Jesus' direction to adjust the path and hopefully learn quickly. That when we fail, it's not that we fail that, that, that defines us, it's what we do when we fail and how quickly we do it. You know David in the Bible King David, great King David, a man of many failures, a guy who committed adultery, a guy who committed murder, a guy who who did several sins based out of his pride. Terrible failures. And yet God calls David a man after God's own heart. How do you get that title? I I can tell you the best thing i figured out to date is there seems to be one sin that David does not do, that all the other kings of Israel and Judah do. From what I can tell, David never worships another god. David never follows a false idol. David sins, and when he messes up, when he gets back up, the first person he cries out to and chases after is Yahweh. Every time. That David's got this repentance thing down, and so God calls him a man after his own heart. And the beauty is when we are, in our failure, able to repent, God is able to begin to repair. Something only God really does. I'm not saying there's no damage. There's always collateral damage, but God is able, is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask for. God is able to repair what we can't. And it's amazing in the moments of failure when we're able to repent and adjust the course and chase after Him to fail fast and learn quickly that He's able to begin to repair. The other thing I'm learning is to learn. The best way to get the most out of our failures is to learn. We, we are never, more in a, we're never in a better situation to learn than when we fail. And yet we're terrified of failure, yet we try to avoid failure. we do everything we can to avoid failure, and, and yet for so, and, and we will skip the learning process in failure. But it's the way to get the most out of your failure. You know who I think gets this and, and seems to have no problem with this? Scientists. Scientists. A scientist will go to something with scientific method, and the scientist will have a hypothesis. He'll write theory. I think it's going to work out this way. And then he runs experiments. And he finds out through the experiments, either he was right or he was wrong. And either way, at the end of the experiments, he jumps up and down and goes, I learned something. I have new information. It doesn't mess with the scientists that he was wrong. It just means there's more learning to be had. And there's something in our failures. I remember in youth ministry, we used to teach our adult leaders to look for teachable moments. And we would tell them, you never have more of a teachable moment than when they mess up. When that teenager has done something and he knows it's wrong or she's been caught red-handed, you have their attention more in that time than any other. You have their attention where what they try to do did not work and they're open to suggestions. We are never more receptive to learning than when we are broken down because of failure. Uh, one, one of the things uh, I'll share with you—it's it's a conversation. Chris Cover, if you know Chris Cover, we we had a while back. He was telling me about a book he was reading. It stuck with me. This conversation he was talking about it's called "The Art of Tennis." Was the book. And in the art of tennis, um, the point of the book was kind of to debunk this idea of how we most often train to play tennis well. And that is to get the correct form, to, you know, to get the, the correct movement, and, and to really work and practice on your form and movement. But the, the art of tennis suggests something totally different. The art of tennis suggests that you play the game of tennis, and when your opponent hits the ball at you, and it's spinning at you, and you hit the ball back, and it goes great. It goes, you know, out of the reach of your opponent. You score off that hit, that, that return on the thing. Is before you, our intent, what we want to do is just celebrate. Just celebrate and move on and assume we're going to do that again. But what the art of tennis does is say, take a moment and give your brain an opportunity to analyze what just happened. How was the ball spinning at you? How did your body react to it and to remember it in order to repeat it? The same, thing, uh, the same thing is taught when the, ball's, the opponent hits it to you, the ball's spinning at you, and you hit it back, and it goes. It's a terrible shot. And the first thing we want to do is forget about it. We want to trash the racket and move on. I mean, we, we want to get over the failure. But what the art of tennis says, no, no, no. Give a moment for your brain to analyze. How was the ball spinning at you? How did you react? And what happened? Remember so you don't repeat that. And the idea behind the art of tennis is that the more we can teach our brains to learn and observe how was the ball spinning when it came at us and how do we react, that eventually the brain will learn better and better and it's not so much form, it's better, it's proper reaction to the situation that's coming at you. And that if you can learn from when you do it well and if you can learn from when you don't do it so well, that eventually you'll get better <laughs> responding when when things are coming at you. We have the opportunity to learn. And the beauty is when we open ourselves up to learning because of our failures, all of a sudden God is standing ready to teach. How many times have you been in that moment it didn't work out the way you thought it would? You weren't as strong with that temptation as you thought you were going to be. You, 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 there you find yourself in the brokenness of failure and all of a sudden waiting around the corner is that message from Kurt <laughs> that you didn't know was going to be that powerful? Is that, that song you hear on the radio? You've heard it before, but for some reason it's speaking in, into your life more than it ever has before. Maybe it's that verse that you've read it, you've heard it before, but all of a sudden it's permeating more than it ever has before because God has been standing ready to teach you. You just weren't ready to learn. And it's in our failures that if we're willing to learn, to just stop and learn in the midst of it, there's some joy to be found because God's ready to teach. The other thing I'm learning about my my failures is to own it, to own them. There's actually freedom in that. There's something better when you get to say what you know you're doing wrong before somebody else feels the liberty to say it. There's freedom in, in, in owning it. The, the temptation is to find the scapegoat, to hope that you, don't, it does, you don't get caught, to the, the hope it doesn't come back to you. But there's freedom in owning it. But you bring something to the table when you own it in your failure. And, and that's the word humility. That if in the midst of our failures, we can bring them to the table humble. Now, hear me out. Humble is not denying your strengths. But humble is being honest about your weaknesses. And we all have them. Great men of God have weaknesses. Look at Moses. Look at the guy. The guy who all of a sudden, you know, he says, I, 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 I can't speak, speak, speak so well, God, you know. And God says, great, I'm going to use you to be the mouthpiece to a nation. You understand where you're at. I can begin to use that. But the problem is we, we, we miss something. That there's pride. Pride is the enemy of humility, right? Pride is when we, we lose perspective is really what it is. We lose perspective. We start to think we're up here. We think more of ourselves and less of God. I mean, that's really the definition of pride, where we think more of ourselves and less of God. And what failure allows us to do is to reset the perception to get a truth picture of what's going on, that I'm not so great, even though I thought I was so great. And failure, there's a joy and failure of, the, of the, re, uh, the reviewing of the actual picture. I, I think it's kind of like this. I have a, uh, a drawing. My three year old daughter, Avery, she made me this picture the other day. And uh, it's colorful, it has stickers. She worked very hard on it. It's her best. In the realm of the art world, it's crap. I mean, it is. You know, no one's going to pay big bucks for this. No one's going to—it's a three-year-old drawing. And I think sometimes we forget we are three-year-olds drawing pictures to God. That we go, oh, God, I have just given you the best worship set and praise I have (laughs) ever given you before. (laughs) You are welcome, You know. God, you know, I gave you that huge donation to the wedding chapel. You know, remember that. You know, uh, you know, I I have just made the the ultimate, you know, kindness to my employees. I have just blessed humanity by doing the right thing, and and uh, you're welcome. And uh, and to God, it's the three year old holding up their picture, going here, Daddy, and God's going, bless your heart. You know, you know, it's it's great. But the proper perspective and the reality of an Almighty God, it's crap. It's dirt just trying to be better dirt. And the thing about failures, is it can readjust the perspective and realize, oh yeah, I'm not as great as I thought I was. That wasn't so great as I thought it was. And when we can take our failures and bring them to the table in humility, well, First Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourself therefore, um, before the, uh, therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Because what God does in those moments is he exalts. God does what I do when my daughter hands me this picture. I put it in the refrigerator. I show it off to a hundred guys. I say, look at my daughter, look at what my child did for me. I say this is great. Because it was my child who did it. And I make it worth something. That's what God does with our failures when we're able to to bring him to him in humility. He goes, finally, I can do something with this now. Finally, I can use you. You've got proper perspective. And now you realize I'm the one doing the exalting. So let me use this for my glory. The last thing I want to share with you that I'm learning about failure is in the midst of the failure, if you can bring it to God. Often we want to hide it from God. Especially when it's the moral failure often we want to keep it to ourselves, because we, we there's something in it that goes, the world is falling apart. It just feels like everything's ending. This didn't work out the way I thought it would work out, and and the, it just feels awful, and we don't know what to do with it, and we think somehow, you know, God is somehow distant now in this moment because I have failed. I have not progressed forward in the jobs he's given me to do. I've disqualified myself, and we feel in this moment, I, I have failed. I, I, I can't even involve God. I'm ashamed to involve God. I, I can't, uh, you know, resolve this myself. It just feels like the world's falling apart. But when you can take the failure and begin to bring it to God, and and I have no better way for you to do that other than to a prayer list. The the Philippians 4 says to present your requests to God in prayer and petition, that that all of a sudden there's something, something deeply spiritually powerful that happens when you're able to take these grand problems that seem all-encompassing and write them down as a few words on a piece of paper. That all of a sudden they just seem like small world, words <laughs> and not so much like a crashing world. And we're able to say, God, here you go. Here you go. This is what's bugging me. This is what's messing with me. This is, I failed. I own it. You're God, I'm not. I'm humble. I'm bringing it to you. And what God does, the mystery of God is through our failures, what he does is God draws near. Do you remember Peter, the apostle Peter? You know, the guy Jesus said, on you, you're my rock, Peter. On you, I'm going to build my entire church. It's going to change the world. And Peter says, yeah, I'm, the, I'm your guy. I'm the guy who's going to do that. And Jesus says, but one thing, you are going to deny that you even know me at least three times. Peter says, I'll never do that, Jesus. And sure enough, Jesus is arrested. And people go to Peter and say, aren't you with Jesus? Aren't you a friend of Jesus? Aren't you a supporter of Jesus? Haven't you spent life with Jesus? And and Peter says, I don't know the man. I don't know who you're talking about. I don't want to be associated with this criminal. I don't know him. And Jesus gets the ultimate victory. He, he is crucified. He raises three days later. And and he's walking around on the earth in whole bodily form. Uh, in 40 days he's walking around. And everybody can't deny the victory of Jesus, but so many people did not team up with the victory of Jesus in that moment. And so Peter, he sees Jesus walking around. He sees him on the other side of the shore. He sees him on the other side of the shore, and and, and Peter, yeah, he's ashamed. Yeah, he's humiliated. Yeah, he doesn't know what to do. So all he does is he just runs to Jesus when he sees him. He hops out of a boat. He runs to Jesus. They've caught some great fish, but who cares? There's Jesus, and Peter runs to Jesus. And Jesus says, let's have breakfast. Let's get the men together, and let's have breakfast. And there, Jesus sits next to Peter, and they're eating breakfast. And Jesus says to Peter, John 21, verse 15, he says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus has every right to ask Peter this question. The guy who said, I'm with you. I am your rock, Jesus. I will never fail. And then he failed. (laughs) Jesus has every right to say, Peter, are you still with me? Peter says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, then feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, then take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Jesus said, and feed my sheep when I was reading over that passage the other day something stuck out to me there's two commands Jesus says okay if you love me you're bringing it to me I'm here with you there's two commands that I have for you I want you to feed my sheep and I want you to tend to take care of my sheep So often we think we are disqualified because of our failure. But when we can bring it to God, God uses it as the qualifying process to do what he created us to do since the beginning of time. And yet he uses it somehow in the mystery and grace of God. He uses it to expand the task, to expand the ministry, to expand the job, to expand the opportunity, to expand the role of good men to do good things in a good created world. God is still calling us to produce, to name animals, to feed his sheep. He's still calling us to tend the garden, to manage, to tend and take care of the flock. He's just looking for men, not who are perfect, but who are good. And we know we're on the track of being good by how we handle our failures. Will you bring your failures to Jesus? It's only him that has the power, the mystery, the grace, and can take it and somehow do something greater with it. And when you discover that, you realize that there's joy in failing. Will you pray with me? Father God, we are a ragtag bunch of messed up misfits. (laughs) And somehow when we're willing to admit that, And bring our rags to you, our failures to you. You are an amazing God that somehow uses them for greater purposes. Lord, thank you for creating us with a purpose. Thank you for not taking our failures and moving us back forward and disqualifying ourselves or separating ourselves from you. But yet that you take our failures and you use them to qualify ourselves. You use them to draw us closer to you, and you use them to do greater things for your kingdom. Lord, may we walk out of here this morning celebrating that we are your children, handing up our paintings to you, God. We know they're not great, but we know you can use them, and you can use us, and we are so grateful for that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.